Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I'm so happy you're here with us today to listen to my very special guest, Barbara Carnes. She's got uh, so much experience with the whole death and dying process and anything you want to know. So we're going to have an interesting conversation today. And we were talking a bit about something that we'll talk about here. But first, Barbara, could you kind of introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. I'm a registered nurse. I started in hospice, uh, gosh, in the early, early 80s and did direct patient care for five, six years before I got into administration. And during those five to six years, I learned that there are only two ways to die, gradual or fast, and that gradual death has a process. And my patients and their families taught me about end of life. And as a result, um, I have really taken on being an end of life educator in the last several years and have written material on end of life. That's uh, that written material is is so important. You you write mostly booklets that are are specific. So if somebody's looking for something in particular that they they want to learn about, then it's the it's easily accessible. I think as opposed to handing them a big book. <laughs> yeah, people under stress aren't going to read two hundred pages. Mm-hmm. These booklets, mo- most of my material is. 13, 14, 15 pages, short, simple, direct, no medical ease, gentle, large print. So that in the middle of the night when you're taking care of someone and you're scared, you can open up a booklet and go, oh, yeah, this is what's going on. I also have DVDs. I also write a blog, a weekly blog. And I have books that I've written, but really what we call the End of Life Guidelines series is a collection of five books that are really guiding tools if you're involved with taking care of someone or have someone that's approaching the end of their life. That's that's so important. And I I always kind of wish that people would look at things like that before it gets right down into it so that they they can be prepared a little bit instead of getting into it and not having a clue what to do in the circumstances. Well, the thing is, people don't die like they do in the movies. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have any role models on what it's like to die. It's television and the movies, and that's not how people die. And so... But no one tells us this. No one tells us. And when our loved one is in in the dying process, then because it's not like our role models, 
we think something pathological is happening, where if you're involved with end of life and you do a little bit of reading, you're going to see probably that dad's doing what he's supposed to be doing, that this is how people die, and he's doing a good job. That's that's so important. There, You know, people think there's a specific way or, or something that you need to do, and it uh, it can get confusing, especially if you haven't been around anything like that. And I've had uh, two husbands die, and they both had the same thing. I didn't know that the second one was going to have the same thing that the first one had when, when we got together at all, but it just turned out that way. They both had congestive heart failure, which led to renal failure, which led to dialysis. And so the, the whole, the first one got me pretty prepared for this, the second one, but I had no idea that, that that was coming. And my first husband who died was sick. Well, both of them were sick for about two years before they, they transitioned. And he, he was really interesting. He was a philosophy professor. His spe- specialty was ethics. And he got in the late 70s, very interested in death and dying. And I don't know why that I was just thinking, we never had that conversation. So I don't know what his fascination was with it. But he thought it would be good to, to teach the nurses at the college where he taught a class on death and dying because they didn't have anything like that at that point. So he went on a sabbatical to England where uh, Dame Cecily Saunders and Dr. Richard Lamerton was like her right-hand man. And, and Jacques became good friends with with Richard. And he, he even came to visit us and did talks for us and that sort of thing. And he learned so much that when he came back, he he was ready to teach that class. He developed the class. It got to the point where it was the only class he was teaching because they had so many nursing students and they all had to take it, that he was kind of constantly surrounded by death and dying issues. And he and a friend of his who was a marriage family child counselor decided that they would do a bereavement group because at that time they didn't have hospice in town yet. They they didn't have a bereavement group in town. And so they they really kind of started filling a need that nobody else had. And what happened was that the people that did come to the group were so overwhelmed with grief through no education, no, no uh, nothing to to learn about. There weren't that many books out at that point, and they they were really lost in suffering. And when I saw what he was doing, and I'd, I'd field calls for him at home because he'd be at work, and people he'd always gave his home phone number to people, and they'd call, and they they needed help like right then. And so I I'd, I'd listen, and I got to the point where I thought I I don't think I want to go to a grief group if if I ever have somebody close enough to me that I felt like I needed some help that I I didn't want to go where everybody was going to cry all the time. And because that's that was my perception of what the the grief groups were. And I noticed that that your blog this week was on grief groups. And <laughs> I thought it would be interesting to to hear your perspective on that. Now I'm I'm facilitating a group that isn't exactly a grief group. My my group is called the Grief and Happiness Alliance. And we get together once a week on Zoom and write about 
uh, things dealing with grief and death and that sort of thing. But we also do happiness practices every week. And I weave the happiness into what they're writing, too. So I keep it on a more positive thing. Something I thought I'd never be doing, but here I am. <laughs> Good for you. Oh, that sounds like wonderful work. So uh, what would you say to somebody who is concerned about going to a grief group? Um, the hardest thing about running a grief group is to get people to come. And the reason for that is part of grieving is isolation, is we don't have the energy to oftentimes get dressed, let alone leave the house. And we're depressed, we're sad, we're, we're not really in control of our emotions. All of that is normal grief. But that also goes against going out of your house to a grief group and talking with people. It's like, I can't talk to anyone. You know, I can't keep from crying, let alone get dressed and sit with a bunch of strangers. So here's the thing to counteract that, I think. Um, and, and the key is you're not going to offer a, a support group for six to eight weeks following the death. That gives the person a little time to settle in. All the emotions are still there and they're just like one open package of pain and confusion and tears, but it gives it a little time out. And for hospices, who run the majority of grief groups, I think they would have better participation if they used their volunteers in, well, not only before the death, but also following the death. The idea of that is to develop a relationship with the griever. And that's not just a card or something like that's calling on the phone and saying, what's happening today? That's showing up at the doorstep with a bag from McDonald's and saying, hi, can I come in? So use the volunteers to develop a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And then in six or eight weeks, when you have your bereavement group, that volunteer says, hospice has got a bereavement group. And you know what? Let's you and I go together. Yeah. I'll pick you up and we'll go and I'm going to stay and let's do this together. That gives the griever some support, a friend is guiding and supporting them. And that's the best way that you're going to get people to come to a bereavement support group. Oh, that that's such wise advice. There's there's just so many people that are alone after someone transitions and and 
I could see that like after Jacques died, the the husband that I was referring to earlier, he was so popular in town and so many people knew him through a lot of things, not just the college, but he also was an actor and singer and he was he was all over the community. And tons of people came to his celebration of life and tons of people said, just let me know if I can do anything. Yeah. So that didn't work. <laughs> and that's, you know, we who are friends of someone who is experiencing a death and is grieving. We don't know what to say to someone who's grieving. And so we either say a lot of wrong stuff that doesn't, it makes matters worse than better, Mm -hmm. or we stay away. And that staying away increases the isolation that the griever has because the griever doesn't have the energy to reach out. And therefore, when their friends don't reach out, um, that just increases the isolation. I can remember uh, my husband and I going to a visitation of uh, a friend of ours, son killed Mm. himself. And we're in the car and we're driving. And my husband said, I don't know what to say. I don't know what I'm going to say to John. And I said, that's what you say. You know, words don't mean anything. And so just say to him, I don't know what to say and give him a hug. And that's exact because they were very good friends. And that's what he did. And I think that that has more meaning than stumbling through words that they don't, they often hurt Mm -hmm. than they help. They do. And I always uh, suggest to people when they they say, what do you say? I say, if if you knew the person who died, then say something nice about them. Yeah. And and that that will brighten up just about anybody. If you like with Jacques, he was a singer, and I'd have people say, oh, I just loved Jacques' voice. I'd go wherever I knew that he was gonna sing. So because I wanted to listen to him. That it didn't have anything to do with saying, I'm sorry for your loss, or you know, well, poor you, but it made me feel good, it made me smile. And it was it was such a, a lovely thing to do. So I I always encourage people to think of something real and positive that that you can say that's the truth, uh, especially mentioning the name of the person who died and not not to be afraid of mentioning their name. And that that's so helpful. And if you say you're going to do something, do it. I had uh, one friend, we, we weren't real close, but somebody, an acquaintance that I knew, and we had uh, done some work in the community together. And her husband had a, a long bout with cancer before he died. And he was doing that when Jacques was not as far along as he was. So, but it was obvious that Jacques was going to die too. And when her husband died, I went over to their house to drop something off because they were having a gathering at her house afterwards with all the people bringing food and stuff. And 
when I got there, I said, well, who's who's going to be here during the service to accept anything that comes in or just kind of be here because that's a good time for people to break into your house because they see in the obituaries that nobody's home. <laughs> and I've seen that happen a lot, too. So she said she she hadn't even thought about that. And I said, I'll I'll stay. I'll, I'll just be here and I'll do that. And I was able to set up tables and put out the food that came, arrange it so that when they got home, everything was all ready. And it, it was such a, a nice thing. And I got to a point where I was a little bit weepy. <laughs> so I just went out in her garage to, to kind of get my act together. And she saw me go out there. So she came out. I'll try and get through this. She said, I'll be there for you, too. And boy, was she. It, it was amazing. And she never said anything about, like, I'm going to do this or whatever. She just did it. She just took care of what needed to be. She sensed what needed to be taken care of. And nobody else was taking care of it. And she took care of it like I did for her. So when, when you can see that there's a need and you can fill it and you do that, that not only makes them feel good, but makes you feel good, too. It does. And I think you make a really great point also in that she walked in your shoes. Mm -hmm. She knew what would bring you comfort and what would help you because she'd been there. Mm -hmm. and that makes a big difference also. Yeah, it does. It's so many times we think we don't have anybody to talk to because Nobody else just lost the love of their life, you know, <laughs> and you don't have to talk to just people who just lost the love of their life. We're, we're all human. We all are dealing with different kinds of loss. And a lot of times, if you just go and sit and hold their hand and listen to them or sit in silence, that's awesome. Don't worry well, about what you're going to do. <laughs> and because the comfort isn't about the words, mm -hmm. it's about being there. It's about holding hands. It's about I'm here for you. And without having to be asked, don't say to someone, call me if I can help you, because they won't. They won't. They, won't. they never will. So you don't ask for permission. You show up. And also, for the first month or so, we as friends are aware of the loss that our friend has. But, and so we're there and we're bringing food and the church ladies are coming. But after about a month or so, the church ladies stop bringing in the food and everyone else seems to go back into their normal life and routine. And we, the griever, realize we don't have a life or routine to go back to, that we have to create a new life. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be even more alone because everyone else kind of figures, well, you know, they've moved on and we haven't. So if you're a friend, keep that contact. It's so important, not just for a month, but for months and months, show up with your McDonald's, just call on the phone. What's happening today? Let's go to a movie, you know, 
help that person. They can't help themselves because that's part of grief. So that's what we being friends are about and how we can support. Yeah, it, it's it's just critically important. I know I had um, a friend once who was dealing with cancer and I was talking to my husband, Ron, the, the other husband, <laughs> about what what could I do for her? And he said, stay in contact with her. Bingo. And so I did. Every day I, when she was going through chemotherapy, I either sent her a text, I sent her an email, I sent her a card, I sent her a letter. I did some, it didn't have to be big, but just one little thing every day. And so she knew that she was supported. Mm-hmm. So, and af- after uh, Ron died, a few months after he died, a really good friend of his died suddenly, who was a lot younger. And we were family friends on the mainland before I moved over here to Maui, or we moved here. And I was so concerned about his wife because I knew that she wasn't the least bit prepared for something like this to have happened because it was very sudden. And so I, I decided, I, I wrote her a letter. I just sat down and wrote her a letter within hours after he died of these are the things to think about now. These are the things you don't have to worry about now. And they just came to me. And I, I was able, even though she was, I was in Hawaii and she was on the mainland, I, I was able to figure out a way to get that to her within a couple of hours where she actually had it in her hand. And she let me know later that that meant the world to her because nobody was talking to her about stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, that everybody thinks that, that you know what to do when you have absolutely no experience. Right. You don't know what to do. And, you know, advanced directives are wonderful, but we Americans tend not to do that, um, as we all should and have our affairs in order. And so not only are we grieving this loss, whether it was expected, because we really, even if we're told someone's going to die, we really don't think they're going to be. They're, there's going to be a miracle. So even if it's gradual death or fast death, we, particularly Americans, aren't prepared. You know, we don't even know how to call a funeral home. Most of us, you know, most of us don't even know where the a, a cemetery is that we would like to go to. And so not only are we carrying this immense grief from loss and everything that goes with that, but there's a lot of responsible things that need to be done that we don't know anything about. And that just compounds all the confusion that is in our life from the point of death for years. Oh, yeah. And then then there's all the guilt that you lay on yourself because you didn't know and you didn't do what you thought you should have. And you think about it later and say, oh, I wish I would have. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important to do things along the way. One of the the big differences between my two husbands, even though they had a lot of similarities with with how they departed, was that Jacques, the one who was the ethicist that taught the death and dying classes to all the nurses, I didn't realize until a couple of hours before he died that he hadn't accepted the fact that he was dying. He thought that he was going to the doctor and being in the hospital and doing all this stuff so that they could 
he'd get better. You know, you have have this pacemaker put in and you'll feel better. And, you know, what all the different and it was it was constant for those two years. Something was going on. But a, a couple of hours before he died, he said, am I going to get better? And I thought, oh, my gosh, I th- we should have been talking about this with him. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was talking to everybody else in his profession about what happens, but he, we hadn't dealt with it with him. And he died two hours after he asked that question. So uh, that that kind of broke my heart because I, I should have known better. I don't like that should word, but uh, I wish that I would have thought of that. I wish that we could have had those conversations. Right. I'm, I'm going to, can I? Toss something out here. Absolutely. We die the way we've lived. And we die according to our personality. And think about his personality. And it sounds like he was a doer, active kind of person. And so he kept being a doer and Mm -hmm. active. And when he realized, and we live in our body, you know, we know when we're dying. We it may take be two hours before we die, but we know. And what I hear is that his personality, when he realized that he wasn't gonna get better, it was okay. And he yeah. let go. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Because that I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Yeah, we die according to our personality. Yeah. Only most people don't know that. Yeah. And Ron, when you said that, I thought, well, Ron died by his personality also. He was a religious science science minister. He hadn't done that his whole life, but he had done that late in his life, and that's, that's how he lived. And we had all the talks. We lived in the moment. We spent all our time together. We did everything that that we needed to do. And when he first realized that, you know, it's it's coming, it's relatively soon, he said, but I don't want to go on hospice. I said, nobody's making you go on hospice. You do what you want to do. And that was Friday. And on Monday, he said, it's time for me to go on hospice now. And I said, okay. I made the phone call and we got that started. He was surrounded by so many friends they came over from the mainland, and then the friends he made here, our Ohana here on, on Maui, were all here. It was like a party all week. And everybody was having his his daughter uh, loves to dance. She was, uh, had, she was out of college by the time he died. and But she, she was a good dancer, so she'd put music on and, and have people dancing. And uh, people would come over and sing for him or uh, play like an Indian flute for him. They did all kinds of things all week long until uh, Friday or Thursday. He actually was pretty much going to sleep on, on Thursday and by Friday evening he was gone. But during that week, he said goodbye to everybody he wanted to say goodbye to. The people that weren't able to come over Fortunately, we had FaceTime, and he called them in FaceTime, looked them right in in their eye, right in their face, and told them whatever he wanted to say. And he he felt complete. That was that was his process. That's what he needed to do. 
And, and he actually got to talk to every single person that he wanted to talk to. And I thought that was so incredibly beautiful. And it was so much, I, I can't say it was easier to, it was easier to deal with his, his death because he accepted it so much. And, and I had those people around me immediately, but I knew even when they weren't there in my presence that they still had my back. So it, I was able to uh, move forward a lot differently than I did the other time. Our friends can certainly bring us comfort. Oh, yeah. Just absolutely can. Just They don't have to have answers. They don't have to say anything. It's just being there. Mm-hmm. That's the, the gift is so that we're not alone. It's, that's so important. Uh, Ram Das lived here on Maui, and I, I actually got to, to see him before we transitioned. But I read his book, uh, Walking Each Other Home. We're all just walking each other home. And, and I just always keep that in mind, that if there's something we can do to support somebody else, it's not that you have to to know, <laughs> you know what you're going to say or what you're going to do. It's just... Being there. Being there. That's the key, is be there. Well, well, this this has been an amazing conversation. I We could go on, I'm sure, for a really long time. <laughs> There's so much to talk about on this subject, but I'm, uh, I'm so glad that, that we got to have this conversation together. And I know it's going to give people a lot to think about. And it's even if your your grief isn't fresh, you can reflect and see how there's things that you can do to help support yourself on, on the way. Well, think of grief as an open wound. And when your loved one or your special person dies, that wound is open and gaping and raw, but gradually that wound heals. But a scar has formed. And I've got a scar on my leg that I got when I was 12. And if I touch that scar, it still feels different. So it is with grief. When something touches our grief scar, the wound that we have, we will feel the loss. We will feel the pain. It's just that as that wound heals, and forms over in the scar, it doesn't get touched as much. Wow. What a what an image. That that really helps. You can put things in perspective when, when you look at it like that. Because you never really heal mm-hmm. grief. You never get back to a normal of what you had, you have to create a new normal and a new life without your special person in it. And so you'll always have that scar and the memories. It's just that it isn't constant like it is in the beginning of our grief. That's right. I know people are always saying, when am I going to get over this? And it's, well, You're not, but you know, you, you be gentle with with how you express that so that it's supportive and and loving. Because the whole thing's about love and how we can love and support each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Well, thank you so much. And I will have Barbara's information on the show notes underneath uh, your recording here so that you can get her booklets, get her books, uh, be in touch with whatever it is that you can uh, use from Barbara. She's, she's a really wonderful resource. And I really appreciate you coming today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And maybe we can do this again. Because I think, I think that would be great to talk about. There's tons to talk about. <laughs> so yes, I will invite you back. I would love to do that. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed uh, it very much. I think we've done some good work. I think so too. <laughs> thank you so much. And aloha to everyone. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.